Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today, I have saved a very special episode for you for landmark number 100. Today's guest is one of the all-time greatest poker players to have ever sat down at the green felt, Jason Kuhn. Jason has racked up over $31 million in MTT caches, which is pretty, pretty, pretty good. It also places him at number 9 on the all-time money list. Some of the highlights of his MTT career include 8 career $1 million plus caches, a pair of $3.5 and $2.8 million gold medals in $230,000 buy-in, high roller short deck tournaments, a $1.6 million victory at the PokerStars Championship in their 100k buy-in high roller event, and this doesn't even take into consideration his untold winnings as a regular in the largest cash games on the planet. Beyond Jason's resume that I could go on and on about forever, I came away from this conversation fully understanding that the man Jason is exceeds even his accomplishments on the green felt. He's quite simply a great soul, and I could not be more honored to share his wisdom with you here today. In today's episode, you're going to learn what greatness means to Jason, how and why he cleverly uses an RNG in his live poker sessions, the power of intention, why his wife is the best poker coach on the planet, and much, much more. And before you dive into my conversation with Jason, I want to take a second to let you know that this interview is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the best to ever sit down in a semicircle and play cards with a bunch of other human beings, Jason Kuhn. Jason, good afternoon, sir. How you doing? Good, man. Thanks. Thank you for coming on the show. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. And uh want to start out today by asking you, you know, greatness, the name of this pod is Chasing Poker Greatness. Greatness is an abstract concept. And so start out by asking you, what does greatness mean to you? I guess it would be centered around not many people can do it discipline i've yeah i've witnessed a lot of greatness at least in our realm and there's just similar qualities that every person has um i guess the ice in the veins kind of thing being able to execute under the highest pressure situations is something that stands out in poker where do you think that comes from like this ice in the veins do you think it's a thing that can be taught or learned or is it just like are we born with it i think it's certainly conditioned uh i 
I'm always going to be biased because I just know what my experience is like. And there's a lot of things that I take for granted that I, that are just like, I don't know, innate qualities that were built inside of me. But I think a lot of it's conditioned, like, um, not a lot of things scare me. They haven't. I think I was just born as kind of like this daredevilish type kid that was always seeking adventure. And then combine that with the fact that my life's been a tornado. And then, um, I felt really, really high stakes for real things, not just money. So save, for instance, that for me is, I think, one of the reasons that I've transitioned into just being able to play my best in lots of scenarios. But that being said, there were a lot of times early in my career that I would feel physical stimuli, nervous, reactionary. And I think that people could pick up on that and make make reads on me, say. And, and um Nowadays, I don't have those same physical, I can say that I just don't have the same physical things happening in my body, like regardless. And I think that that was just a process of just feeling it, you know, feeling it being there over and over again. And uh, remember, I've said this before, but one thing that's always stuck with me is I was playing a big game in Macau. It wasn't even a huge game, but it was big for me at the time. And I lost kind of a lot. And I was talking to my buddy, David Benefield at the end of the session. He had been playing high stakes much longer than me. And I said, how, you know, how do you deal with all this? How, how do you, when you play, you just don't seem like it drains you the same way that it drains me emotionally. And he said, I just kept doing the stuff that hurt until it didn't hurt anymore. That's makes a lot of sense to me. And like thinking about it from like a mixed martial artist perspective, right? Like how do you get used to getting punched in the face? Well, <laughs> you get punched in the face a lot, right? Like, you, you know, you train that um, and your body conditions itself like football players, right? Like, how do you deal with the the toll that football exerts on the body? Well, you practice a lot and you, you know, your body responds to that suffering and uh, comes in a much stronger package down the road. So diving into your story, I want to start at college because college is the point to where, you know, you started playing cards. Yep. Tell me your story beginning to play cards in college. It was interesting. Um, I was an athlete, very serious athlete, suffered a, I won't say career ending injury because I came back after surgery, but I was, after that, it was a combination of me being more interested in playing poker and physically just not being as good as I was prior to the surgery. How did it feel when you hurt yourself and not being able to compete like you had? Yeah, I mean, with with track and field, even though like my heart in other sports, like I like I much preferred to play football and baseball, and I was pretty good at both of them. But in high school, I realized that for the area, I was very fast, and um, after I had some big accomplishments and better scholarship offers than I got for football. Um, it was pretty obvious to me that track was like the most reasonable thing for me to pursue. And I got really good at it. I actually got way better than I thought I would have gotten in college, especially I was training cold weather climates half the year. And, but I, I achieved times my freshman year that I never thought I, I would be able to run at that age. And so I was feeling really optimistic about my future. Um, specifically, I had just like, I had a really I had a goal to try to get into the 10 fives in the hundred meter dash. I, it wouldn't be like a world-class or even a national class time, but it was this number I had in my head. Like I want to crack 10 five, even if it's 10, five, nine, I want to hit it in the hundred. 
And I was having a really, really big fall training and running the 60 meter and the 55 meter indoors. And um, I ran up to 200 meters and I was running a 200 meter in an indoor track, which makes for much sharper turns. So uh, I was in the winter time and I had a really strange hip injury where it just felt like a little thud in my hip flexor. And in the moment I was scared because I couldn't pick my leg up, but I was like, Oh, I probably just pulled a muscle. And then once I realized that I had something bigger, it was really deflating. Um, because at that age, uh, really the only responsibilities I had were like not flunk out of college and track is basically everything to me. Cause I'm a competitor, you know, like if that's my thing that I'm doing, I'm going to be all in. And so it was, it was rough. I, I was really, really bummed about it. Um, and then just like, started playing poker for fun and it was it's pretty ridiculous how fast it happened so i played with a few friends in college and within like a week i it was all i could think about it's very strange it's the only thing in my life that i've experienced like this and um do you know why i can't explain why i just loved everything about it i loved being able to look at people and figure things out i loved being able to it gave me the same feelings as competing at other things. I'd box, I'd played, you know, a bunch of contact sports that kind of get you. And, and I was feeling the same physical things that I really loved to feel. It was, you could even say I was addicted to. And once that came into, I instantly like saw things, even though I wasn't good at the game, I realized that people were not good either. And I went to a Walden bookstore, like a mall, and I bought five books. And I don't think there's ever been a time in my life where I've read five books in two weeks. And, and I did. And I, every game that I played in for the next year, everybody said I was cheating. And I just like won everything. And, you know, I, I had like a, whatever, I borrowed 40 bucks from my mom one night, lost it, like cried, thought I was a DJ, went and got another like 50 bucks. And I can't say that I never like, went below that point but it feels like i didn't and like within i would say six months of being online i went from like playing small stakes to the highest stakes tournaments that were online and then like within a year i was winning how so you know you noticed mistakes that people were making yeah what do you attribute that to your competitive background seeing like just how games are constructed and like understanding strategy like where did that come from yeah, well, I, you know, I had my basic, like, within the first week, I learned, like, oh, you probably shouldn't play every hand. And you, <laughs> yeah. you probably shouldn't, like, put all your money in unless, unless you can improve, you know, with nothing. And so I'm sitting there and just seeing these guys kind of blast their stacks in with just hopeless hands and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll just be a little more conservative than them and and see how that goes. And then I just, like, won a bunch of money. And then... I played people that were smart and they beat me because I never bluffed. And then I, you know, I had to play that game, the iterations of becoming better. And, um, and I can't fully explain it now. I just attribute it a lot to the repetitions I've played. You know, I've been doing this for 12, 13 years and immersed in it for 12 or 13 years. So a lot of the things, uh, that aren't just fundamental from just hammering out work. Uh, I, I, it's just there because the mistakes that people make in front of me, I made before them. And I remember the way that I felt when I made the mistake or why I thought what I thought was right. And 
So generally now it's like, I just have so much experience that especially if I'm playing against weaker competition, I, it's not that you're bad. It's just that I played that bad exact feeling that you had. I had six years ago. Right. And you're able to recognize it, see it, and then exploit it for what it is. And I I think like one of the things that I picked up on fairly quickly in my poker career was that there was tons of value in calling and people weren't really calling often enough. They were doing like the raise or fold kind of strategy and just putting Mm -hmm. a lot of money in. So like just bluff catching and keeping people's ranges wide and funneling in bluffs was like a super valuable thing that I just kind of intuitively understood like, I have a marginal strength hand. I don't want to put a third bet in here because uh, he's just folding all his bluffs. Let's just let him keep putting in money with bluffs. But that's the only like strategic point that I think I kind of intuitively picked up early on. It's like you say, you know, three betting light becomes a thing. What's the response Four betting? Okay. Well, what does that look like and why are we doing it? And yeah, it's just the natural evolution as you move deeper into the decision tree over time. Um, and just tricks and just tricks work at different levels and then they stop working and then the new trick works and then eventually no tricks work. But, <laughs> you know, you see guys um, like one of the most common things that I consistently see and I completely understand why is if I play like, say there's like a 5k online or like a 5k main event or something. Um, and then you see like a person who is very good at those stakes, kind of like the mid stakes of live tournaments or whatever they're very competent players, but they're all kind of batshit crazy. Like they, they all just like put in way too much money everywhere. They raise too much. They three bet too much. They see bet too much. Everything is all front door aggression. And it makes so much sense because the weaker players just overfold every single spot. They refuse to adjust. So like, you'll see a guy who is like a 5k crusher. He's like one every, I don't know. Yeah. Like little 5k at the Venetian or whatever. And then they come up to higher stakes and people stop folding to them and people start calling down the right hands and people see like how wonky their turn in river strats become because they never check the flop or whatever. That's just like a kind of a, it's all processes of it's, it's not as simple as like, Oh, step up to the next level and learn how to outsmart the opponents because the game's just so complex and so deep and people are brilliant and there's many different ways to learn, but it is kind of like, we're all like early iterations of a PO sim, right? Like you look at, like if you solve PO for 20 seconds and then hit stop and look at it, it's the shit it's doing is absolutely insane. And then you let it solve down closer and you're like, Oh, that kind of makes sense until the point it reaches an equilibrium strat. So all of us are just kind of, trying to go deeper and deeper into that spectrum of playing closer to right and uh but it's yeah it's just impossible yeah it's funny because it's like you're you're beating the stakes that you're playing and you're crushing the stakes that you're playing and you you don't have experience playing against the next level of guys and until you do and see how they're adjusting and what their strategies are looking like that's the only time you have that opportunity to start adjusting your own game right Yeah, but eventually you hit a point where people are playing really, really close to optimal and you it's not about tricks anymore. It's about understanding the nuts and bolts of the why of the game. And the game is so absurdly hard that you can't just go up and be like, oh, well, you know, 
Timofey Kuznetsov got me with that play on the river. So I'll use that against the guy that I do next time because you stop thinking about like trying to get people with tricks and you start thinking about why your range does what it does because of both of your ranges or multiple other reasons. And the only way out once you get to that point is to completely understand and you never fully understand it, but just be immersed in theory and, and then being able to execute the theory, being smart enough to identify all the different mechanics. Yeah. I know human, you know, we see guys, people are very, 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 very good, but um, no humans close to playing optimal, like fully optimal. Of course, because I mean, it's extremely difficult. Just mixing, having a mixed strategy in general is for a human with no random number generator in front of them is like almost impossible to pull off just because we're human beings and like emotions are such a factor in our decision-making process. We're biased based on past results with very specific hands in these spots. Yeah, but so, you always you always have a random number generator in front of you. Um, I never play without some kind of randomiz- randomizer in front of me. Well, yeah, you're, you're playing against these guys, man. If you were playing the one case though, would you have the random number generator in front of you? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that people overestimate how strong exploiting is. I think that there are obvious spots where you're playing Joe the Farmer at the World Series of Poker and there's you know you just do everything pure because that's what your hand wants to do against the way that they play. But specifically, um, like say I'm playing some – yeah, say I'm playing a main event, like a party poker main event or something. You – Regardless how weak the competition is in front of you, um, not randomizing preflop is pretty much just bad because you just absolutely have to do two things with a hand. And if you just think that people are like every player at the table is not not weak enough to understand that like pretty quickly they can kind of get the gist of what you're up to um, if you're just sitting there just doing stuff because your hand wants to do it over and over again preflop. I think that you open yourself up to way too much bias and people always do the thing where they say, Oh, well, the sample size isn't big enough. You know, people are only playing with you for a couple hours so you can do whatever you want. But I think that allowing bias to get in the way starts you down this road of ego and start overestimating your own abilities. And there's just like, at least for me, there's a lot of clarity and simplicity that comes along with doing something random. Um, it just gives me a freedom. I don't have to go home and judge myself because, oh, maybe I should have been more aggressive in this spot preflop. Or, you know, if, if I think that I have a good feel for what my person's opening and what the proper response is to that, and there's a ton of mixing preflop, I'm going to mix. And the way that I'm going to mix is use RNG. That's uh, super interesting to hear and i don't play a lot of tournaments so my career has been like 16 years of cash games specifically but i was i was under a different impression as far as the rngs go at the smaller stakes tournaments that they wouldn't be extremely valuable in tournaments but uh if i do decide to make the transition one day on on your wisdom uh the first thing i'll buy is a random number generator and start figuring out like what that looks like and finding the reasons as to why it's so valuable. You can just use your chips if you're playing a live tournament. Um, How do you use your chips? Tell me. Uh, pick, a, pick a 
somewhere on the chip that you want as an indicator, uh, treat it as 12 o'clock on a clock. And then as you shuffle, look down and see where the dot is and then use that as a fraction. Nice. That's, that's very clever. I, I've wondered how folks are using a random number generator to uh, manage their frequencies uh, in live poker. Yeah, it's not exact, but it, you know, it gets gets you good 5%. Enough. Yeah, yeah, it's better than you. <laughs> it's better than than us trying to do it on our own. Mm-hmm. So you've found poker in college. You found success. When did you when did you decide that this was going to be the path that you were going to take? Um. Well, I I decided in a conference call at work. I was, I was in Pittsburgh, PA selling group insurance for Sun Life Financial. And I was on a conference call and they said, Mr. Kuhn in Pittsburgh, can you tell us about this product? And, and I said, uh, I was thinking to myself, well, I was like up all night in an F-tops tournament. And, uh, I really enjoyed that. And then I said to the guy, you know, thanks for the opportunity, but this isn't for me. And I walked out and that was when I decided <laughs> to play poker. <laughs> See ya. Um, yeah. Pretty uh, pretty clear transition to mm-hmm. living the poker lifestyle. Um, yes. So you have success. I know that you you moved in with Ben Tolerine, right? Like what at what stage was that? How many years passed when you became roommates with him? Ben and I didn't become roommates until 2012. Whenever I first moved to Vegas, I moved in with Nick Ramponi, who was an early heads up, sit and go MTT guy. And then um, I ended up living. Um, with Steve Gross, who was Gboro 780, Chris Mormon at one point. Um, I lived with, who else did we live with? Bounced around, Doc Sands, uh, Tom Marchese, those guys. Um, yeah, and then I ended up settling in with, Ben and I were both kind of gym rats, and uh, we worked out at gym. We'd have a couple beers here and there. We were both single bachelors at the time, and he was like, Hey, you know, I, uh, not necessarily sure if I'll like living with you, um, <laughs> but we can try if you want to move in. And if I don't like it, I'll just tell you to leave. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I moved in with him and we lived in the same building as Phil Galfond and, uh, hack dang was also there. So we got to hang out a lot with hack and, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to be in those guys company. You know, they were all the, the upper echelon of poker and, um, specifically living with Ben, who is to this day, the most impressive poker player I've ever seen. And just seeing the way that he approached the game and thought about the game. And he would just consistently call me out on kind of pseudoscience ideas that I had about poker. I, I just attributed so much stuff to kind of like flowy tricks. And he would just point out flaws in my logic and really, really quickly realized that I was much, much worse at the game than I thought I was. And kind of went into a hole. I, I stopped playing live poker for a while. I started using Stocks EV and getting coaching. Um, paid ICAX and some money uh, for coaching back in the day. Bugged him. And, and just kind of brushing shoulders with those guys, I felt inadequate. I felt like I'm so far behind these guys. And it wasn't – I didn't have the feeling like, oh, I, I, I can't get there. I just really wanted to be there now. So I just got to work, man. And there, you know – and that was a really, really long, hard road, really, really long, hard road. And one that several times along the way, I thought I was wrong dead to get to. Yeah, I, it just pushed me to levels that I, you know, I pushed myself to levels that I, I never thought I, I would get to. There, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, 
you're the average of the five people that you spend your time with. And I mm-hmm. think that you're spending your time with some guys that are, have pretty high, uh, <laughs> pretty high levels of poker. Tell me about one of those dark times when, you know, you thought you might be drawing dead to get to where you needed to be. Why did you keep pressing forward? There were several times. Um, so I was playing tournaments online for a while and I was doing okay. I was actually having a pretty big year. I think I, you know, I played mid stakes for the most part. Um, and I won like the, what was that tournament called the Sunday warm up on stars. And then the next week I got third in it and that was super lucky, but it was a nice shot to my bankroll and my confidence. And, but I played heads up sit and goes. And I also played some ring and L cash. And I was just talking with Ben and Ike and they were saying, you know, I think we think like a really good way for you to get better at the game overall is just to play six max and L and try to get good and try to beat the game. So I started at 500 zoom and, um, and I was like break even small loser through like 40, 50 K hands, 60 K hands. And, um, it's really, really sad about it. I was, I was doing all the work that I could do. This is pre-solver era. And, um, my friend Geraldus Volgaris had a uh, crazy place in Whistler. And we were friends because he lived in Vancouver and um, whatever. We just hung out a few times and really started to like each other. But he was, I think, in USA. And he had this empty, like, ridiculous house. It was, I don't know, $20 million house in, in, in Whistler, which is beautiful in the mountains. And he's like, you know, you can go up there and stay if you want. And there's nobody there, but... So I just decided I'll go live in this guy's crazy place <laughs> yeah. by myself and I'll play Zoom and I'll do nothing else. I, I didn't ski. I didn't. And it was winter time, And I just sat there and I played Zoom uh, every day and by myself, you know, I'd get on Zoom calls and study and or um, Skype calls and study. But uh, I just couldn't couldn't crush the game. And I, I just remember like one night, like putting my head on the table in tears by myself uh, and just being like, man, I've committed so much of my time to this game and how how can I not beat like my buddies at home playing Victor Blom at 501k and just smashing everyone and, you know, winning millions of dollars and I can't beat 500 zoom and I'm supposed to be like a good poker player. You know, this was like 2013 or something. And uh, yeah, I like went back home and talked to Ben about it and he was really honest with me. Uh, We were at a bar drinking, having a couple beers and he he was just pretty honest with me, just telling me that he thought fundamentally I was still way behind where they were. And, you know, it's just going to take a lot of work and years to get there. And I might, I just might not have it in me to get there. Ooh, how did um, it feel hearing that? Yeah. You know, he was like my hero and, but, but he wasn't saying it in a hurtful way. He was just saying it honestly. Cause he yeah. was like, you know, <laughs> that's <how> worse, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's yeah, like, yeah. That, that, that matters more all, even. Exactly. So, um, so it was rough, but there, um, in 2014, PO Solver came out, or at least to me, maybe it was out earlier, but the, like January of 2014, I started really grinding, uh, solvers and, you know, my first six months of grinding solvers were just kind of learning how to use solvers, uh, making a bunch of shitty work and it not making sense, not putting the right race sizes in, screwing up abstractions, learning how to use Amazon web services, all kinds of stuff. But this thing that maybe this was this 2015, this may have been 2015. Um, I think it was 2014, but uh, yeah, once that came in, I, I just like basically became a full-time 
solver kind of runner and being able to visually see things once they popped out was like opening Christmas gifts to me. I just loved seeing it and, and aggregating all of my studies and um, it made everything so efficient. And um, yeah, so I just became obsessed to the point with that, where the answers were there and then everything I played, I just won at, you know, I, I wanted to prove to myself that I could beat zoom. So I studied six max and L and I won it like, I don't know, eight BB per hundred over a really big sample. Um, so that, so that felt good, you know, to finally, finally get that monkey off my back. And that was like, oh, okay, here we go. And that was over like maybe 90 K hands or something. It was a lot of hands I played across a bunch of sites. Thinking, looking back on it, it's kind of a funny, funny picture. I'm just imagining you in this $20 million home in Whistler by yourself. Like if you're like seven year old self could have seen you <laughs> battling mm-hmm. in this playing cards every day and this like playing like small stakes too. It's pretty funny. It's like, yeah. Couldn't even afford the uh, water bill in that place for the stakes <laughs> I was playing. It's a, it's a funny image in my mind. So then you, you started crushing your Pio grinder, just the visual aspects stuck out as being like your preferred methodology of learning. Well, it wasn't necessarily that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was my preferred methodology of learning, but it was starting to, I have all these brilliant people around me and I see things. And when things confuse me, I call one of them or message one of them. And we try to figure out the puzzle together and over and over and over again, over and over and over and over and over again until I can spot all the patterns once I start to understand all the mechanics of it. And, um, yeah, just being able to utilize those guys and kind of once again, point out flaws in my logic and start to understand the game and just the way poker games work at deeper levels. Cause this stuff all transitions. It's not just for no limit or short deck or PLO. Um, once you kind of understand the way that poker games work and defense frequencies and bluffing frequencies work, uh, combos work and side cards and blockers and all of these things work you just kind of start to see poker in in a different light. And it's not something that you necessarily can do just by playing. You you have to study AI and then figure out, okay, it did this. And then why did it do this? Because that's the thing with PO. You you can't see it bluff all in with this hand on the river. And then you hover over the hand and it says, well, I bluffed this because I unblock this many combos of, of calls or, or, or I block this many combos of calls and, you know, I don't want the spade here. I want the club for this reason. It doesn't say that you have to figure out why. So it's, it's not, it's funny. Cause people are like, Oh, the game is like so different now. Cause people got these solvers and now it's like all memorization, you know, and it's a like complete bullshit. There's right. memorization has almost nothing to do with it. It's, it's about being able to pick apart the why of the game and um, well, solvers we- are a great starting point. Yeah, when you know, like, when you have a baseline strategy as to, like, what it's supposed to look like, then you're able to deviate when you see people messing up fundamentally. They're just making mistakes, and you have visibility of those mistakes, then you can just have natural counters for them, right? Well, I I think rather than looking at it like that, just look at it like you're not thinking about who you're playing against right now. You're just thinking about how do I learn the game to the best of my abilities, and if you look at something that reaches an equilibrium strategy and then you start to figure out why it did what it did, you can, the the only thing that I'm thinking or saying that really changed stuff for me is understanding the true fabric of depths of the game that you don't, you can't understand without solvers. And then sure, like just being good at poker and have played all the hands and studying outputs 
when you show up and some person's a total mess and they're doing something wonky, it's going to be pretty obvious what to do. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you ask me the one thing that makes poker players, I, I won't use the word great or who the best poker player in the world is naturally or whatever. But if you, if I'm going to put my money on someone today against anybody in the world, it's going to be the person that one can execute under tons of pressure and two understands why the game is the way that it is, why things work the way they work deeper than anybody else. It has to be those two things. And you're the path to finding the why you believe through Pio. Well, no, it's through everything. I mean, the first thing you have to do is be in the seat for years, you know, and then you have to be, have access to the guys, you know, access to the guys. You you have to have, you have to have the ability to, to play. You have to be intelligent. You have to be good at tons of different things that I can't even fully quantify. But there's just some people that have it and a lot of people who don't. Cool. Um, so you broke through. You're crushing the games. Feeling good about yourself, your poker ability in, what was that, 2015? That's when it started coming together for me, yeah. And when did you meet Bianca? 20, well, I met her in 2007. So we both ran on the same track team at college. But we were just friends and... um Right before Black Friday, she came to hang out with me in Vegas uh, before we had to move out of the country, and uh, I had to move to another country, and she went to Manhattan for work, but that was whenever I started really considering her as uh, potentially more than a friend, but it wasn't until 2015 that I was traveling around for some poker stops, and um, she flew out to after I played Bay 101 and we hung out in San Francisco and Napa for a few days, um, that it was really, really obvious to me that we had to try to make it work. So that resulted in me being in New York a bunch. And she looked there, there's this crazy stat. So I watched your, um, interview, the I am high six poker interview. And there's this, when you met your girlfriend who became your wife, you had 2.5 million earnings. Then you have 13 million earnings in 2018. And then today, yeah. 31 million in earnings. And just yeah. to like put this into perspective, like you have all these crushers in your life that are helping you um, learn how to beat this game and you're helping them and you're growing together. And then this girl who you start spending more and more time with, like is the catalyst to this just massive explosion of success. Yep. And so, you know, tell me about your relationship with her and how she's helped you, you know, improve as a poker player, a human being, and just improve your life. Yeah, it, it's all really, really wild stuff. Um, we have a beautiful relationship. We really do. It's, um, I, I can't believe how much I've changed since um, we got together. She, she really had an amazing way of seeing things the way basically all the damage that I had accrued my entire life. She had a way of examining it, not being judgmental and helping me work through it. And um, my whole life I've had huge problems with fear and anxiety. It's funny because this stuff that I'm afraid of, most people aren't afraid of. And the stuff that doesn't scare me, most people really are afraid of like high intense moments, fight or flight moments. Like I'm, you, you want me around. I'm going to be able to handle those because I was just lived in chaos my whole life. But I'm the kind of person that if I, I drop a glass on the floor accidentally and it breaks, 
I like want to crawl in a corner and like, and I'm like cussing and I'm like mad at myself because I just have like all this PTSD from my childhood. So she had a, just a great freeing way of being able to communicate with me and help me kind of put my guard down for the first time in my life and trust her. And, you know, my, my whole life, it was like a lot of people saying words to hurt you or people saying words to do something to achieve a desired outcome that they have that isn't just direct with what they mean. So it was like constant manipulation. And, you know, for the first year or so we were together, she would say things and I would still just be like, is she trying to, what's she trying to get me to do here? What's the angle? Yeah, exactly. And it was just nothing. It was just honest, pure over and over again. So the first time in my life I had that from, you know, in a romantic relationship. And uh, once that happened, I'm really, really determined. I'm the, like, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to be humble, but, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself all around the most talented person in the world. I think I'm very talented at things. You know, I think I'm a very talented poker player, but like, I'm a workhorse. That's really what I am. And whenever you put something in front of me that I really find valuable and I need to make a change for that thing, you know, if it's whether it's to like, I need to do all this work to be good at poker or like something bigger than that, even like I need to stop being a hothead or so reactive so I can have a healthy relationship with this person that I love very, very deeply and who I trust now. It was the first time there was, there was impetus in my life to, to make those changes, to start like really digging through all this baggage that I had. Yeah. And once that started to come together for me, I didn't burn out uh, the way that I used to burn out. Things would go bad for me. I would handle them better. Um, I had this vision of a bigger picture rather than just earning money. Like early in my career, it was like, oh, sweet. I made a couple hundred thousand dollars. Let's go buy this car. Let's wear these clothes. And why am I hanging? Why why am I surrounded by a bunch of assholes? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, You know, I was just like basically wanting to be perceived as successful or like loved or you know i got a bunch of shit as a kid for being broke so i wanted to have nice clothes or a nice car so hey look at me i'm not broke or whatever yeah um and once those motivations change into hey let's build a let's build a life so we can have a family and so we're safe and i really got my shit together and all the leaks dropped all the fear dropped um or not all of it but i'm getting better every day and uh you know on top of that just from a logistics standpoint she does all my accounting she if we fly somewhere, if I'm flying into Macau, um, she's already got every organic grocery store delivery service on the line. We land, there's everything in my uh, hotel that I need. We travel with workout equipment, 70 pounds of food. I don't think about anything. I show up, I study and I go play my game and I come back and there's food waiting on me and whatever, you know? So Um, she just made me efficient. Yeah. And it sounds like you both trust one another um, greatly and like you want it, she made you want to be a better man, right? Like let's 100%. just, she just made you want to be a better man. And, um, when, was there a moment that you noticed that you trusted her, that it was like a tangible, like I trust this person now in a way that I haven't really trusted another human. Yeah, it was, I can't say it was a moment, but it was the process in which I started to, the things that I just convinced were me. I was just convinced that like the way that I handled certain situations is just part of me, you know? Um, and then I realized like, Oh, this doesn't work for her. 
And then I could start to like deconstruct stuff that I just thought was, you know, I was broken or whatever. And I fixed those things and I had breakthroughs where, you know, there was a time in Florida. Here's a good example. There was a time in Florida. There was this guy who was being completely obnoxious. I was with her and my mom and this guy was like walking up. She, he walked up to Bianca, he took the hat off her head and put it on his head at a restaurant. And I used to be, I had problems with this. I mean, I, I used to be the guy that was looking for this guy. Like I would go out to try to find this guy to kick his ass. Like this is who I was in college. I mean, even, you know, if you ask her, she was like, Oh, I was pretty worried about really getting to know Jason because the Jason that I knew in college was just like cl- clearing out bars all the time. And I felt like, you know, this guy was c- like being pretty obnoxious towards my wife and my mom was there or whatever. And I felt like disrespected and, and I was just, I don't know. I, I was really calm about it. And what I handled the situation like a sane person would not like a crazy hothead. And um, yeah, it was just things like that. Like I started to really change myself and try to be more patient and less angry and more rational. And, and it sounds like simple to, to say these things. And I'm sure for most people, it is pretty simple, but for me, it's the hardest thing in the world. It really, to overcome anger and fear and reactivity. She was the only thing strong enough for me to overcome that. And I mean, these are emotions that are hard for all human beings to manage and deal with and come to terms with. And they manifest in many, many different ways in all of our lives. And like, I think that your reaction, you know, somebody comes up and grabs a hat off your wife and puts it on his head. Like, you know, he's clearly like you're there, right? So like, he's clearly Mm -hmm. trying to provoke you for some uh, reason in his own mind. And like, I think that there's a large percentage of the population that would be extremely confrontational in that moment. Yeah. And, you know, you combine that just with the way that my household worked. I mean, my dad was the most toxic masculine guy. He was, um, you know, he was just really, really violent. And, and he was the kind of guy that was like, Oh, you know, you never cry. You never lose a fight. If you lose a fight, you come home, you get your ass kicked. Like, it was like that, you know, I was in the middle of rural West Virginia and I was just a mean kid. And, and that was how, I got admiration from my father was, Oh, Hey, you know, dad, I, I beat this guy up or I bench pressed 300 pounds or, you know, I, I, I look, I cut my hand and I'm not crying about it. You know, whatever it was, it was like this kind of, that was how I got what I perceived as love. And and then for years I was kind of seeking. And the only way I knew how was to be that kind of person. And, and it's just like when you're, seven, eight years old, your brain's so malleable. It's like, that was just really felt like it was just ingrained in me forever. Um, It's tragic, man. It's such a, such a hard cycle to break or to get out of this deriving your worth from, you know, in in a lot of people's cases that are, that are not as extreme as yours, just deriving worth from winning at things. And like, I hate losing. This is something like my students tell me, I hate losing. And I'm like, why? You know, because like, let's dive into like this emotional reaction to loss mm-hmm. and losing. And like, what does winning mean to you? Does it mean worth? Like, do you feel worthy? Do you feel stupid? Do you feel like a loser when you lose? Like, mm-hmm. let's explore these emotions and why they're manifesting. Because yeah. like, you know, in my, in my life, I, I felt worthy when I wanted things. Mm-hmm. I was naturally athletic, naturally competitive. And when I won, my parents were happy and they praised mm-hmm. me and they talked to their friends about me and I felt special. And so mm-hmm. when I lost, what's interesting is that when I wanted things, I never was excited. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever jumped up and down. I never was like elated. I felt relief yeah. that, that I didn't fail, that I didn't get, that I didn't have to feel horrible and worthless. And like, mm-hmm. it's such, um, navigating these emotions and learning, it, it's just such a big part in all of our lives. And like, to the listener who, who's listening to this conversation, you know, if you derive your worth from winning, like really investigate and, and ask yourself why, like, does it need to hurt so bad when I lose at things? Does it need, does it need to feel like this? Um, and hopefully you'll come to some, some conclusions that maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Yeah, man. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's very uh, mature and, um, sharp of you to uh, be able to decode that about yourself. It makes me think about a guy like me who is very, very similar to that compared to a guy like Ivy who exact same demeanor. Every single time I see him, I, I can't tell if he won or if he lost literally every single time for him. It's just being in immersed in the game. It's just, just being there playing and um, doesn't, just nothing changes. It's, it really is just about the, the act of, of playing the game for him. Whereas people, you know, like you or I, it sounds like a lot of our motivations just came from seeking the success. And, and, you know, I, I say like, Oh, I've grown so much now or whatever, but I've also had a ton of success, you know? So I I try to be cognizant of that. It's like, maybe I haven't improved as much as I think I have. Maybe my ego is cooled off because other people are like, Hey, you don't suck at poker or because I have money now, you know? So I do think that it's pretty easy to pretend to be this enlightened person when you're kind of on top of your own world or whatever. So I I really try to stay aware of that and um, consistently work. And and it's, you know, no matter if you're at the top of your world or the top of your field, you can still be miserable too, right? Like it can still make, make you, uh, it can cause massive suffering and you can be really sad and really upset and really unhappy and live a life that isn't very fulfilled. Like even when you're at the, the top ladder, the top 0.0001% of your field. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons you see a lot of these guys specifically in poker. I think you see a lot of them, um, kind of achieve something and then they're kind of like, ah, oh, I'm out. I'm not playing full time anymore. You know, because for most of us, I think the process of getting to and maintaining that level of play is it's really stressful. It's it takes an immense amount of commitment. And on top of that, people are so damn sharp and so hungry. And you don't want to be the guy that was like the good pro ten years ago and now you're like the withered pro. Yeah. You know, you don't want that fear. We've all seen that guy a hundred times. Um, so I think like in a lot of ways, when you see these people like announce that they're cooling it down on poker, it's so their ego can chill out. So they don't have to like, hey, I told you guys I wasn't going to be good anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's, um, it's so, yeah, it's like the, that, that pressure. I feel it all the time. I mean, I, re- I really do. It's tangible and it's, it's real, that pressure to continually succeed and not be, you know, if you're like playing five ten or whatever, not be the old man that was crushing in the nineties and then doesn't realize that the game passed him by one day while he was forgetting to learn and grow as a poker player. I think that like all the guys that are in this, that are competitors, that's the fear. We go to sleep at night thinking about that. Like, am I going to be that person that wakes up one day and realizes that like 
the game's past me and I'm not good enough anymore. And I just am not a winning poker player. Yeah. I, I think um, even like beyond that being self-aware enough to just be able to adjust where you play and make sure that you're like, it's okay to not want to work all the time. Like you have other stuff going on in your life. You lost your passion, whatever. But I think when a lot of us find our value in what the community thinks about us um, and not so much value in why we're actually doing what we're doing um, just because we like it or whatever, I think that that's just something that sooner or later you have to deal with. Yeah. And going back to, you know, what you said earlier about, um, it's easier once you've reached levels of success to kind of chill out and, and not be so emotionally um, fiery or uh, you know self-flagellating. But I think too that at least in my case, you know, this is me coming out the other side from being a young adult who was extremely um, brutal to himself to compete every single day and extremely unforgiving when I made what I perceived to be a mistake and it didn't even matter what my results were on the day. It was, if I fucked up, like that's what I'm going to think about. And I'm going to be in my head saying, why did you do that? Are you fucking stupid? Never do that again. Like, well, what's your problem? You know better than that. And like, I just know that that feeling, that mental voice just telling you, try basically whipping you forward. That's like, you are going to be perfect. And I just know that there's a lot of suffering that comes a lot of pain that comes when you approach poker and life that way. 100%. The sad thing is a lot of, it's maybe not the only way to get there, but a lot of the greatest players are that exact personality type. When, when you came up in the mid two thousands and like there was limited coaching and, you know, it's a bunch of young men trying to figure out how to make it in this world, you know, that that's the path, right? Like Absolutely. that's the path that makes sense. Yep. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop boot camp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like, I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? 
Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. So your wife, you know, she, she found, saw your blind spots. You, you trusted her. She trusted you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life just uh, was never the same. I mentioned that one, or I mentioned, I read that one thing you do regularly is you reevaluate and reset your life. And I was wondering, what does that process look like as granularly as possible? So... I just feel things. I constantly feel things pulling at me. Um, I really am an optimizer. And so I try to be loose. Like say I, I, I work really hard. Um, take for instance, the last like month and a half, I've been chilling for maybe like two weeks ever since uh, I, I got back from, I, I was in Canada um, quite some time uh, playing online. And uh, prior to that, I, I did a Russia trip and before all or right after all the COVID stuff, we just like locked down and I basically just, I played apps and I played short deck and we played every day and we played and we played and we played and we played. And in moments like that, I, uh, I let, I give myself some room. I'm like, okay, you know, we're, we're earning here. We're going crazy. We're grinding. So maintain, maintain the workouts, like nothing crazy. If you don't have the energy, don't do it. Take a walk, whatever. Uh, eat good. But I realize that there's not going to be social time for me. There's not going to be time for me to train the way I want to train. There's not going to be a lot of things. But the second those things cool down, it's like, okay, let's be recreational. Like, like for instance, the last couple of weeks, there hasn't been poker for me. Um, there won't be online poker now. Um, and that's great. I, 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 I want to play a video game with my buddies on the internet. I want to um, work out a lot harder. I want to eventually see my family. So the constant reevaluating and understanding that there are several, there are tons of times, especially like as an entrepreneur or as a poker player, where you have to be all in on one thing, but you know, the second that that thing cools down, you have to make up for all the other stuff that you put by the wayside. So I feel those optimization effects. The second that I have quiet time, I'm like, okay, time to get the body in shape, time to spend more time with the wife, time to start cooking, playing guitar or whatever it is. So for me, I just naturally drift that way. Like um, I was talking to a buddy today about how, you know, we all just pick up our phones. Of course, everybody's had this conversation where you pick up your phone and you're not even reading what's on the screen. You're just, yeah, you know, a little dopamine. Oh, you're, God. You're, you know? you're checking your email while you have a web browser up that has your email account. On it, exactly. Yeah. You got three <laughs> different emails open at the three different tabs, whatever. Um, and rather than being that way, I think it's just, uh, I feel like I'm a cliche in so many ways, but I'm totally cool being a cliche. I'm totally cool being the dude who's like overly optimistic. Who's like, Hey everybody, let's do better. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's, 
let's let's have fun and be happy because it seems like nowadays being happy is like not for the cool kids you know it's like it's way cooler to just be miserable and hate everything um but i'm totally fine being the cliche that everybody's like man this guy is like you know he's always talking about doing better and working out and trying hard and doing all this shit but i think just having intention man like I pick up my phone. I want to have intention. I want to think about why I picked up my phone, you know, that, that level of awareness. And I think that's the most important thing that we can all work on. It's just intention with our actions. And if you just think about things in a structured way, even if you don't live a structured life, you'll feel a lot better. I was talking to Ben the other day, uh, tolerine, and he was just saying how like his mornings are really strict now. And he, he does a set of things every day. And it's just added so much value to his life. And and it's because he has intention every morning, you know? Yeah. And it's just gaining awareness, like, and realizing the incentives of the world and what is the currency of the world. And like, you know, the currency of the world is our attention point blank. Like that's Mm. what is monetized. That's how all these businesses make money. That's how Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And so like, they're going to spend billions of dollars optimizing their systems to hijack your attention as frequently Mm -hmm. and as often as possible. And because we are fallible, flawed human beings, it's going to work. Like the deck is totally stacked against us. Yep. It's really easy. So just like sugar, you know, just get another hit. Yeah. It feels good, right? It it feels good getting a like on Instagram or Twitter or retweet, whatever it is. Sure. There's something that I hadn't intended on talking about, but I do want to touch on it now that um, we've gone down this path. A good friend of mine, Adam Creek, he's an Olympic gold medalist. He's a high-performance coach, uh, multiple-time world champion rower. And I asked him years ago now, it's crazy that it's been years ago, but I asked him, you know, how does somebody be a high-performer, an Olympic-level athlete, and also be a good husband and also be a Mm -hmm. good father Mm -hmm. and he said it's really simple you don't Mm -hmm. it's a path that is very selfish and you just you you can't be both you cannot be the best in the world and be an amazing dad and i know that uh, kids are a big part of your future and i'm just wondering like Mm -hmm. you know what is your path once you start having children are you still going to be playing at the levels that you currently do well um, it's a great question. It's something I think about all the time. Um, the quick answer is I, I won't be nearly as good as I am now. Um, I've accepted that. Uh, but there, I do have a few good things going for me. Um, most of the games that I'm actually interested in playing aren't against the toughest players in the world. They're kind of higher stakes than most people are comfortable playing and generally have uh softer players in them so i don't have to be the best player in the world to win um the games that i have to be the best at are like super high rollers poker tournaments and whatever 200 400 on the internet um and you're not winning that much money in those anyways that's not a bunch of my earn or a bunch of my ev is playing 100ks every year you know you're the best player in the world. You're making like whatever, 6% or something. For sure. Um, so that's kind of the beautiful thing for me is I've uh, met the right people. I've been around long enough, I've built the relationships and I built the bankroll um, that, you know, a lot of the stuff that most of the high stakes players need to play, the 25Ks, 100Ks, I just don't have to play. Um, so what will probably happen is I'll be a lot more committed and 
at home and my game will diminish, although I'll try to work as often as I can and stay rigorous with it. And then I will just play big cash games and, you know, yeah, I, come down. I, I love to hear that. I love to hear that, like, because it's another thing that's going to change you. I, I'm a father myself of two little girls. And like the same way that, you know, when you, you met your wife and then you were motivated to change, like right now you can visualize it and you can imagine it. But then when it actually happens, um, <laughs> the motivation to like be loving, be caring, be the person that like, you know, you didn't have will become yeah. like everything like that's going to become mm-hmm. your entire focus is like you know in my case my, my case was a lot different than yours and there was no physical abuse in my life it was more of like I was a smart kid and my sister kind of got into trouble and she struggled and so like I kind of raised myself and I couldn't mm-hmm. like count on my mom to show up to pick me up from school on a half day for instance like sure. I, I was the kid sitting by himself for six hours while everybody had gone home and I'm like where's my mom like she doesn't have a job why is she not here right so like mm-hmm. I I made it a point with my kids to always kiss them to always hug them to always tell them how valuable and worthy they are and just, you know, love them in a way that like, I didn't really feel myself growing up. And I just know that like, it's going to be, it's going to change to your life's work when that goes down. Um, Mm -hmm. And are there plans? Is this a a thing that's actively happening um, with you and your wife? Yep. We are going to start trying uh, the spring of next year. So it's right, right around the corner. We got everything, uh, put into place it's it's been pretty impeccable our scheduling with everything the engagement um post engagement the wedding and everything is it's it's pretty funny how like five years ago we kind of nailed the guess and it's been almost identical to what we thought it would be um obviously i've run way better um than i i would have ever guessed but yeah but life-wise everything's kind of been right in schedule and i i'm completely uh willing to accept the fact that I just want, I will be all in as a pops and, um, and I will just like, that's going to, I'm going to be way more interested in that than I am studying a three bet pot or whatever. And, and that's great. I've had, you know, 13 years of this and I've had, I've had five years of being pretty damn good and, um, and probably, you know, whatever, at least another one of going real, real hard. And, and I'm totally okay with that. I don't have to be in the poker hall of fame. I don't have to be, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me that uh, if people say 20 years down the road that I was one of the best poker players ever, I, I don't care. I, I just, I did my job. Uh, I did it really well. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. I, I'm just, I'm willing, I'm willing and I'm so grateful uh, that, I got to find something that's truly like, I'm really, really passionate about and I'm good at. And, you know, I see so many people that were more talented than me that just never found the thing that they liked. And so it just fell into my lap and, and I ran good. And, uh, I mean, yeah. come on, man, you're, you're already in the poker hall of fame. Uh, I think this is, this is gotta be pretty much a lock at this point. You're like five years <laughs> away from the minimal mage. Right. Um, but what, what's interesting is like you ran good, in poker, um, better than you thought you, you would, but I view it as life as well. You, you met the perfect human for you that has given you peace, tranquility, 
and a happier, more fulfilling existence. And that to me, like you can't run any better than, you know, meeting your soulmate. Oh, it's insane. Uh, it really is. Like we, we were a hilarious couple. Like we do the things that you see in movies. I really do. Like we take a walk every single day together. Uh, every night we take a walk and we talk about our day and really are our best pals. Like we really, really are. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. It's just great to be able to be yourself all the time and literally never get sick of someone. Like if you, if we do, it's like, all right, I'll, you know, take a walk or take an hour. And that's that it's, it has, uh, it's very strange to live a normal life or at least somewhat normal home life. Like it's first time ever for me. You know? Yeah. And I think like we're all kind of chasing that normalcy in in some one way or the other, right? Some of us, I guess, uh, more so than others. Um, I have some some like uh, rapid fire questions here that we can shut down with, if you're cool with sure. that. Yep. Uh, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? And it doesn't have to be poker related, even. It would be uh, the Mike Sexton book uh life's a gamble because i love that guy he was an amazing uh, storyteller and you know he's in the fabric of all of us and the beginning from the moneymaker boom and everything and i think that it's uh he deserves respect from everyone and uh he was one of the few like untainted true pure poker ambassadors and uh yeah so much love for him I can't help myself because my curiosity is too much for me to bear. Do you have any Mike Sexton stories you'd like to tell experiences in the real world? Yeah. Um, we got to know each other pretty well after I came home with party poker. We, you know, the first, uh, WPT I, I, I played the second WPT I played at final tabled. Um, and it was my first big live final table. It was in 2010. Um, it was the Festa El Lago, the Bellagio 10K. And um, that week, like on day three, I saw Mike Sexton for the first time ever in person. And I was an actual nobody. I'd won some stuff on the internet, but nobody knew who I was. And we took the time and he he was like, hey, where's that where's that accent come from? You know, you and I both sound like kind of Southern. I was like, yeah, I'm from West Virginia. He's like, oh, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. And we got to know each other a, a little bit, but he came up to me at that final table and he like gave me this, this kind of got me pumped up, gave me this like big, like I, I was standing there. It's like, Oh my God, Mike Sexton's like, give me a pep talk. Like, you know, <laughs> don't do this. Don't do that. And every time I saw him for the next few years, it would always be like, Hey, Jason, how's, how's everything going? How's West Virginia treating you? And, um, so yeah. And he was a, he was a really good swing dancer and I was always interested. I love music. I love, uh, classical dances i think like you know the romantic dances i think are pretty cool and that country swing always caught my eye because i'm from west virginia so he showed me some moves and <laughs> sometimes we would be uh, you know practicing our moves at wpt parties and stuff um but yeah he was a real bro too like he uh i mean this guy had like 50 million dollars at one point and he just lost it all <laughs> like um most people that that would happen to they would be jaded pretty angry bitter jealous people and i didn't even realize wasn't. he lost it i knew he was yeah. like an, an early party poker oh, investor yeah exactly but when they were massive valuation before um uiga i think it was the uh the thing before uiga or maybe it was just was uiga like four years before black friday yeah like it was like 2005 yeah um, yeah so it was that yeah 
Yeah, it was that. Um, so yeah, after that happened, like, and they had to u- leave the U.S. market, like they lost a huge chunk of their net or value. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah, and he just lost loads of it because he was offered like, I think he was offered like forty or fifty million for his piece, and he didn't take it, and then like it, it kind of ended up going to not a lot at all, and yeah, and just long story short, he was just always like happy and optimistic and funny. And I feel really lucky that I came into the game like later, but I still didn't come in so late that I didn't get to know a lot of like, you know, I know Doyle, I know Mike, I'm good, really good buddies with Eric um, Seidel and get to know like a lot of these characters, Hellmuth or whatever. So it's, um, I'm glad I didn't miss that. Yeah. It's those characters to me, like when I was coming up, they were poker, you know, that was what poker was to me. And anytime I, get a chance to have an interaction with guys like that it's just like it's an incredible experience for me because like i'm a fan of these people yeah, i'm like course. holy shit i love these like i i was i was 18 years old reading doyle's book like on airplanes and like not only that book but like his other book just mm-hmm. uh that was just like story based and like you know um he he lost his daughter doyla died when when she was real young and like he didn't win poker for like two years after that this is like a story that is just firmly implanted in my mind when i think about trials and tribulations in my own life and when i'm not able to really win and and i'm like you know this happens to everybody you know like life life affects poker in this Mm -hmm. tangible clear real way and um yeah those guys those guys are uh, they, they mean a ton to me um because this has been you know my life and my livelihood they deserve the respect i have so much love for those guys yeah for sure um if you could wave a magic wand change one thing about poker what would it be i think it would be the perception that it's uh that it's a luck solely luck-based game to the general masses god how is that not a thing yet like we're so far into this how how is this not like common knowledge yeah it's not much of an ask yeah, it's, it's, it really isn't um, at this point. Uh, it's, it's really not. But unfortunately, this is the world we live in. And uh, what I do wish back then, you know, and I'm sure Mike Sexton wishes this as well, is like that the poker world would have paid a lot of money to government lobbyists um, mm-hmm. back then because we would be in a totally different world now Absolutely. had we invested into, into lobbying for legalization and regulisa- re- uh, regulation. Definitely. Um, if you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's it say? Be nice. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, be kind. Be kind. Not only be kind to other people, be kind to yourself too. Mm-hmm. Realize that you make mistakes and have some compassion. What's some, something people would be surprised to learn that you're horrible at? Uh, I'm really like insanely bad at multitasking to the point where it's like really dangerous. I, um, whenever I think about something, I can think about it to the point where it feels like I'm inside of the thing I'm thinking about. I'm inside of the world of the thing that I'm thinking about. I literally have hands will pop into my head that I played six years ago. I'll think about the exact way I felt like online, live, everything. But if I think about a hand while I'm driving a car, I'll just drive into the side of a building. You know, it's like, yeah, it's really, really, it's an actual problem. I have to be like very, very aware. Like, Hey, you can't drift off mentally. One time, uh, years ago, I played a WPT in like outside of Cincinnati 
was like in Indiana or something. And I started thinking about a thing driving back to West Virginia from Indiana. And I don't remember six hours of the drive. I like literally woke up from a thing that I was thinking of at once I was in West Virginia. I didn't remember the way the road looked or anything. Like I didn't even think about it. Is that not normal? <laughs> I say I this because know. this is something that I have experienced as well, where like, oh. so like I'm just somewhere else. And then all of a sudden I'm where I was traveling to and I <laughs> like tell you how I got there. Exactly. What happened. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's normal, but it doesn't, doesn't feel like it's a safe thing. Yeah. It doesn't feel safe, but it, Uh it it certainly happens to me as well. Um, so that was why I was wondering, like, maybe this is something that happens to more people. I don't know. I have no idea. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart. Oh, um, project I'm working on that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, completing a home. That's pretty cool. So yeah, that, you know, the home that we start a family in is pretty, uh, it's a pretty cool project. It's almost finished. How much uh, longer you got? Uh, a couple of weeks. Oh, that's, that's, that's is very close to being finished. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, to get you out of here, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, well, I'm really not much of a, a person to follow. I'm pretty lame. I don't, I don't post all that often or anything, but it's just my name on Twitter. And, uh, my Instagram isn't really like a promotional thing. It's kind of more of a, I just, whenever I post something like family oriented or something I thought looked pretty. Yeah. This pretty, this lame guy will just all of a sudden like post a uh, two sentences, just jam packed with wisdom that are like, <laughs> fuck, he, he's, he's got a really good point there. I think <laughs> the one yesterday was something like, uh, do, you know, if you want to feel better, do something that your, your brain's telling you, you don't want to do. Uh, yeah. I feel like, like a lot of my, I feel like, uh, a lot of the things that I say, like I said earlier, like cliches are kind of like, a like a broke man's Jocko Willink or, or, <laughs> or like a broke man's Naval or something, which I really hate to compare myself to him because for many reasons. Um, but honestly, I embrace that part about me because it's like, uh, it makes me excited to be alive. You know, I like getting better or like doing something like yesterday. I, I did a really hard workout, like a lot of hard workouts. And I woke up feeling like shit and like not wanting to be not wanting to do anything. And, and I think that having people in your ear that are like, even if they do seem like overly positive or um, overly constructive or whatever, I think it's just good because you really might just read something like that and be like, "Mm, he made a good point. I'm going to take a walk or whatever. You you know, what's so interesting about that is like, it ties back into Pio and like those cliches gain in value when you understand why they're so valuable. When you understand the purpose and where this person came from and the breakthrough that they had and why it's so meaningful to them. So like as in poker and in life, when you know the why, um, these cliches automatically become more meaningful because you understand what they mean. Absolutely right. Yeah, I truly, uh, if I'm tweeting something, it wasn't premeditated. It's like I, it was actually whatever I'm saying just happened to me like 10 minutes prior to that. And I was like, ah, shit, I'll share this. This, <laughs> this, this was a nice moment. Nice moment, man. Uh, it's been great having you have a good rest of your day and um, congratulations on your house. Thanks. And uh, like to have you back on the show. Maybe in a couple of years, we can talk about fatherhood and what life is like for you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.